You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. It's good to be at church with you this morning. Um, and a special thanks to those who um, really helped a lot on Friday both at uh, the funeral and then at the dumpling night. Uh, it's much appreciated, your energy and efforts uh, in serving others. Uh, so thank you for that. This morning, um, as, uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, or you're back after a while, we're in the middle of a series uh, which we, we generally run in August, which just allows us as a church to reflect on who we are and what God's call is on us as his people in this part of Sydney, in Chatswood, Willoughby and Artarman. And uh, uh, this year our series has been titled Life Together, reflecting on the communal life of our church. Our vision as a church is to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. It might sound outrageous, but it's simply just uh, uh, taking hold of the scriptural promises, uh, especially in Revelation, of God's great church, and our longing to be a glimpse of that here in this part of Sydney. And we've said to ourselves that in order for us to continue to move toward this goal, this picture of church, um, we have four kind of repeatable missional characteristics of our church that we want to be praying, bringing, growing, celebrating. And the last one, celebrating together for the glory of Christ, is the characteristic we've spent our month in August reflecting on. In a sense, we're asking ourselves, what does this 
this compelling community of Christians look like? Because that's really what we're talking about here. This togetherness which is centred on Jesus. And what does it look like to be the church, to be God's people living together? We used a couple of images in, uh, in the scripture so far. First week we talked about being a family. And the second week we talked about being God's field. Because these are different images that the Bible and the New Testament uses to describe the church. And today we're going to move to a third, a third image. Before I go there though, what about last night? Great game, hey? <laughs> still, got, still getting rid of the adrenaline from my body. It's amazing. I, I obviously was playing the game. Uh, something about sporting events though, very interesting if you've ever been to one or you just listen to the, the papers afterwards because often what they're actually extolling, even more than the skill set of the, of the team or the individuals playing, is the atmosphere of the event. It's, it's, been, it's what people have talked about. It's what they're captured by. If you've ever been to one of these kind of games, last night there was 50,000 people, you know, uh, Stadium Australia, they have 80,000 people. You come away, you talk about, oh, I mean, that was an amazing goal or that was an amazing set of skills as a team or great result, but you often come away talking about the, the atmosphere. Here's one, one author says, they say, we're fascinated by the mood of the gathering watching the event and the influence it seems to exert, creating that mysterious thing called atmosphere, nearly as much as the event itself. You see, he says, in part, one of the reasons why you want to be at these things is because you can watch the, you can watch the game on TV, as we did. The atmosphere, I've got to say, in our household was probably slightly different to Suncorp Stadium last night, despite my daughter doing her best to cheer along. You want the ticket because you want to experience something. Right? And in that moment, there is a sense where kind of there's, there's all these voices focused on one thing of energy, of electricity, of power, to use a word that's often, often overused. It's a, it's, a, it's a moment that is transcendent in the sense that it takes you out of your ordinary. I think that's why people go to these kind of events, whether it's sporting or whether it's a, a great musical concert. Maybe you lucked out and got tickets to Taylor Swift. I'm sure that many people in this congregation were checking the internet feverishly right, to get your tickets. You go to these things in part because you want to have a sense that your life is lifted out of the mundane. Is it? That there's something bigger, something powerful, something extraordinary that my ordinary life may not always testify to, but I can be part of. Now, the Israelites in the Old Testament knew that this existed. This is a hallmark of their life. But occasionally, they just had these moments where the, their ordinary kind of agricultural lifestyle went beyond that. It transcended that. And in the writer of the Hebrews, he's painting a picture of Mount Sinai. This is a moment where this basically nomadic tribe encounters God, this great powerful moment. This is the story of Israel. But, but that story is always almost kind of inaccessible. You know, God, God flashes up for a moment, but the story of the nation is actually really just a story of hundreds of years of, of ordinariness. Right? breaks in at a moment, then disappears. 
Now what the writer of the Hebrews says is having talked about that first mountain, he says that actually that experience is available to us as well. And so he talks about this second mountain in the passage that was read to us. And see what's described here. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's using three different images there to say that there is a place where you can encounter God, because all of those images are about encountering God. Mountains in the Old Testament were where the kind of the prophet or the leader of the nation met God to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city, God's city in the Old Testament. And he says, there is now a place where you can encounter God. You know, Michelangelo, when he paints this, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he's got a picture of David, uh, of Adam and God, right? And their finger is nearly touching because the great desire is for man to encounter God. And the writer of the Hebrews says, this is possible now. This is possible. And he says, you've come to, to thousands upon thousands of angels in, in joyful assembly. He's painting a picture of which, you know, our hearts in those moments when we're in a stadium or we're in a concert or we're in a great gathering and there's a unity of voice, it seems, right? And we think there's something good about this. They're actually just like an, they're just an echo of this thing that, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about, which says that's, a, that's accessible to people. He's not talking about a Taylor Swift concert. He goes on and he says, you have come to God. To God. I don't know if you were here in the building when we started and we had those verses which Jill read for us. The awe and the majesty and the glory of God. And the writer of the Hebrews says... You can, you can encounter God. You can encounter God. There is a place where his justice is perfect. And you can encounter. In fact, you see what he says? He says, you have come. You have come. Right now this is possible. Because we might read this passage and think, this is a great picture of heaven. This is a great picture of heaven. This is what... This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But he says you have come to it now. This encounter, this experience with God is actually available right now. You don't have to die to go and experience it. Right now, the, the readers of, the, of this letter to the Hebrews, and by inference us as well, can have this experience. You can have it. The very thing that your heart is longing for. Now this sounds a bit mystical almost, right? Except that Jesus actually affirms this in the verse that Pippi used for Spotlight Day, where, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is saying, right now, in this gathering of like 80 people, in this higgledy-piggledy building, Jesus is here. He's with us. Jesus is with you. He's right here in this building. The Lord God himself. If you ever think there's a reason to come to church, that's got to be it, surely. If I said to you today, by the way, the, the Prime Minister of Australia will be visiting our church next week, that would elicit a response. You may decide to make yourself scarce that weekend. 
you may be the first one here next Sunday. But either way, you're going to do something in response to that. Knowing that, that that Sunday, you're going to make a very deliberate decision because the Prime Minister's coming now. The Bible tells us. Jesus promises us. And Pippi's illustration, um, using science, uh, some, some law of physics, I think, was at play there, um, reminds us that though we do not perceive it with our eyes, the powerful truth is that Jesus is with his people. He's here. And Paul, picking this up, says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, it's true that each individual Christian is given the Holy Spirit when they put their trust in Jesus. And so God dwells in their hearts. Peter will call you living stones. But he says, you're being built up. What? Into a temple. And Paul uses this language, that you yourselves, as in you together, are God's temple. He's affirming that when the Corinthians, and again, by inference, us, get together, we are God's temple. Now, not temple as in, we think of temple and we think religious practices and traditions. No, but the temple fundamentally is the place where God chooses to be, to dwell. And so Paul, picking up Jesus' own words, that's where he says, we're two or three with you, I'm, I'm there with you as well. Paul says, you are God's temple, right here. And this tells us something. It tells us that objectively it's always true that God is with you if you're a follower of Christ. But you really experience the presence of God when you are with God's people. You cannot experience the presence of God in a deep and powerful way alone. God chooses to meet his people, to be with his people when they're together. When they're together. And so in the gathering of his people, we experience this presence of God. We experience that, that thing that our hearts are actually yearning for always. We experience that moment of, of breaking out of the ordinary and making contact with the majesty and the glory and the awe and the power of God. Now the question is, how, how, how do you do that? How, how is that actually possible? How does that take place? And the writer of the Hebrews gives us two warnings and then a direction in this passage. And the two warnings, in a sense, help us to... Um, to get the balance right, because in a sense, we can often make mistakes in this when we think about this aspect of our life together. If we are the temple, which is the third image that we're using, then how do we ensure that we get the balance right? And he says there's two warnings. First of all, he says, you, you are not to be troubled by God's presence. And so in verse 18, he talks about, he talks about, you have not come to a mountain that is burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom, and to storm. He says, there used to be this experience of God, where, which is what Moses experienced. Now, Moses was the greatest of all leaders of Israel. But Hebrews says that when Moses went up the mountain, he trembled. Even the greatest leader lived in trembling fear of the Lord. Because you know, he understood he could be... He could be struck down like that. But you haven't come to that. 
That's not what it's like for God to be dwelling in your presence. I think some people think that way about God's presence. In fact, that's why it's almost inconceivable for them for God to be here. Because if he was, he would destroy everything. He'd destroy everything. So actually what it turns into is this very kind of lifeless, joyless, rigid um, religion which attempts actually to kind of keep the, the boundaries um, sufficient around us so that God actually can't get too close to us lest we be destroyed. So he warns us, do not, do not be troubled by God's presence. But equally he says, do not be too casual about the reality of God's presence either. And he says, remember that God is the one who once more will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. In other words, once more, God will judge all things. And like running you know, um, wheat through a sieve, he will, he will shake out that what's not meant to be there. And all that will be left will be the unshakable things. God is and remains the judge. He is the consuming fire. He is the one who requires awe and reverence, says the writer of Hebrews. And we're meant to kind of meet, we're meant to find this balance between the two as we, as we consider the presence of God in his people. Not troubled, but not too casual. And I actually think often our discussions about the life of church are because we have a preference for one or the other. We either think, I should be scared of God, that's why I'm going to tend towards some kind of formal, highly formalised, rigid, traditional view of religion. Or we're too casual with God and we just think it's all on our own terms, that we get to create our own experience of God. Ah, But the writer of Hebrews actually gives us the key to getting the balance right. He says in verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him, who speaks? He says the key to get the balance right is to make sure that you listen to him speak. See, what, what allows our, our gathering to, to find the balance is to hear God speak to us. The word of God at the center is what balances us. It's what allows us not to err onto one side or the other, but to understand fully the great benefit and privilege of being God's people gathered together. The Word of God. And the reason is because if, if you don't have the Word of God at the center, whoever your God is that you're worshipping is an idol created by your own mind or the mind of another person. It's either someone who, who, who is, if you're humble, a much better version of yourself or a much better version of someone else you know. The word of God is crucial. John Stott, the English theologian, wrote this. He said, he must disclose to us, he, that is God, must disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what we are in acceptable worship. Now, this is so counterintuitive to our society because we think, I'll just create my own version of God and then I'm happy to throw my lot in with him. But the Bible challenges us. No, no, you need to listen to him who's spoken. He must first speak. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. God must always speak first in order to ensure that we're actually worshipping the right person, not just a version of ourself. 
I mean, I understand why we want to worship a version of ourselves. It's much easier. It's much more affirming. It's much less challenging. But of course, you then fall onto the side of the casual worship. Or if you're a, a person who's kind of prone to a depressive view of yourself, then probably you fall onto the troubled version. But the version of God that you find in the Word of God is perfectly balanced because that's actually God speaking, revealing Himself. You need the Word of God. Now, the Word of God comes, of course, in the Bible and in those who open it, uh, preachers, Bible study leaders, all all of those things. And and I suspect that's where we would automatically think, okay, how do we centre the Word of God in the life of our church? Well, we we get some guy to get up and speak for 30 minutes on it and someone else reads the Bible. Okay, that's, that's fine. We have a Bible study during the week. Yes, all of those things are excellent. I just want to push you on that a bit because we're thinking about the vision of our church, right? And what does it look like for us to really entrench the Word of God and the life of our church in a way that presents us with the, uh, the, awe, and rev- the awe and majesty of God? And take this from the Apostle Paul in Colossians, because he doesn't say that it's just about preachers or Bible study leaders. Here's what he says. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. That's what we're talking about, right? Dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now you think, okay, well, that's what I'm doing right now. That's what you do in your Bible study. Yes, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is very, very interesting inside of Paul. He's saying this very same thing. He's trying to recenter the, the Colossian church. He says, make sure that the word of God sits at the center and do it by what? Singing. By the ministry of music. The word of God brought to each other through the ministry of music. You might think, well, Paul's just taking a stretch here, but actually this, the idea of music and song as a way of entrenching the word of God in in his people is through the Bible. We're created, the psalmists say, to sing. And in fact, creation itself results in song. We're commanded to sing, say the psalmist. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he commands us to sing, just as he does in Colossians there. But also in the Bible, we see examples of people regularly who are compelled to sing. There's um, Hannah, blessed by her son Samuel. She bursts into song. There's Miriam, as she crosses over from the Red Sea, bursts into song. There's Paul, imprisoned in jail, bursts into song. Because God has both created, commanded, and compelled us to sing. Now, music is a powerful thing. You don't need to be a Christian to believe that. But the Bible is offering us a theological foundation for the value and power of music in the life of God's people. Singing together with gratitude in our hearts is the hallmark of a life together that is shaped by the truth that God is in our presence. And so we, should, we need to focus on this as God's church. There's a tendency, uh, I think, fit, I think, fairly actually, to say that Anglican churches uh, don't value the place of music ministry in the life of their church. We're strong on the preacher. We're strong on Bible studies. Because, of course, we understand the value of God's word. 
But the scriptures say that the word of God comes in a number of forms, and one of the most powerful and repeating forms of this word of God entrenched in the life of the church is the ministry of song, the music ministry. And, you know, the NCLS survey, which we did early in the year, one of the, one of the little data points is very interesting. It says, across our Anglican diocese, 50% of people say they always appreciate the music. I think that's a terrible stat. Only half the people in church appreciate this thing that the scriptures say should be at the heart of our, ch- our life together. You know what's worse? In our church, only 33% of people say that. Now, if you're in the music team, that's not a go at you. I'm, I'm blessed by the ministry of our music team. That's on us. Because the, the task of singing to God with gratitude in your hearts is not the responsibility of three people on stage, but the communal responsibility of God's people as we sing together. So I really want to encourage us with a couple of things. First of all, if you have the gift of ministry in music, Share it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important. It is valuable. Don't keep it to yourself. I can't. I don't have that gift. I'm not keeping it from you. Be assured. But if you have it, share it. Share it. And thank you to those who already do. Thank you. I know it costs. One of our members, one of our members helped us out recently in a service. Um, They were very nervous about doing this. They rehearsed all week because they understood what a blessing it would be for the people in that service. It cost them. It cost them time. It cost them energy. It cost them leisure. But we are enriched by their ministry. Secondly, if you you at home sing with others, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? Because you're so used to only singing Christian songs at church. But sing at home. Why not? One of the things we do in our family is we just sporadically just put on music in the house. And the kids, they're less, entren- they're less like limited by social conventions, and they sing. They sing to it, and we sing. We feel silly sometimes, but we sing anyway. We have music in the car. My son, Sam, remembers more from a Colin Buchanan song than... God bless Pippi, any of her lessons. That's not because Pippi's lessons are bad. It's just because God has ordained the ministry of music to teach us the word of God. Sing it at home. Develop that and sing it here. Sing it here. Don't be the person who props yourself up on the pew in front to get through that five minutes. You know, the, the power of ministry of music is not so much in the bass line that whoever plays up here is playing but in the ministry you generously offer to one another. For us to be a church that is beautiful, diverse and large, in part involves an acceptance, a treasuring of this great privilege that God has given us. He's in our midst and he wants us to sing. Because that's the picture of Revelation, right? When God is there in the centre, what are they doing? They're singing praises to him. It's not one person just talking and everyone else just sitting there passively. The vision of God's people is this. Now, here's the thing. Why, why is this gathering so much more special than what will happen on Wednesday night? At the if you get a ticket, take it, of course. If anyone's got a ticket they want to share it with me, I'm, I'm happy to go too, of course. 
But there's just something like categorically different about this experience of being together with 80 people, which elevates it beyond the 80,000. You'll go to the 80,000, you get goosebumps probably. If you win, that'd be great. If you lose, you'll still probably have a great time. But here, something is categorical. What is that? The answer, you see, is in the very word of God and what it's presenting to us. See what, see what the writer says? He says, you have come to all those things, but fundamentally to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, be sprink- and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've come to a place where the great gospel says that though God is high and mighty, a consuming fire, you, because of the Lord Jesus, can draw near to him. You can draw near to him. And what's more, you are known by him. You're known by him. When I was at high school, um, they had this guy, we called him the Marshal, he was a a retired Green Beret from the British Army. And he was, he was like in charge of discipline. We're a boys' school. He's in charge of discipline. And the way he exercised discipline was like in the extreme, just, I suspect, barely within the bounds of legality. Um, but there were all these kind of urban legends that were also tied with him. Like, if you did this, he'd do this. One of them was, and it was backed up by, by evidence, because if you came to school with a non-regulation haircut, uh, it would be gone by recess. And so he would see you, you'd, the boys would come in, uh, shaking, shaking around, showing off their do. By recess, I guarantee he would have taken you up to Ashfield, given you a buzz cut, you'd come back, short back and sides, number two, number three on top. And that would be your hallmark for encountering the marshal. But what was really interesting was, as you went on through school, and he got to know you, and you got to year 12, if you made it that far, he, he could, still couldn't remember your name. He'd call you Sunshine. But he really liked you. And he'd share these jokes with you. And he'd give you a hug on your last day and say, well done. And, you know, I think encountering God in the gospel is this moment when God, who is high and mighty, comes down and meets you. And what's more, he knows you. When you go to the stadium on Wednesday, you might have a great time, but you'll just be one of 75,000 people. Sam Kerr won't know who you are. When you come to God's church, you are one of the great multitude, and yet God knows you, and he loves you. See this? He says you come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. God knows you. In fact, he set aside a place for you. And the great joy of the gospel is this. When we we embed that in our life, we are singing not just about God, but his gracious treatment of us. What a privilege. What a privilege. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel which makes all your glory accessible to us, not because, not because you have changed, 
but because graciously you have changed us in the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, fill our hearts with such joy that they might pour forth in songs and words of praise and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.